You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Back to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's talking about it, talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. He's talking about moving. It's Mr. Jeff McLeod Hughes. <laughs> what the hell song is that from? That's Funky Town. Oh, man. that's yeah, Lips Funky Town. Yeah, Lips Incorporated. Yes. I'm like, really? I, I think without the keyboard strains, my brain is like, you know this yeah. song, but you don't know what it is. So, yeah. Or the very milk toast version by Pseudo Echo. Yeah, I, I remember significantly disliking that. Yeah, I didn't dislike it. I thought it was okay, but it's just, it ain't got the same. Yeah. It ain't got the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not there. It's definitely a lesser recording of, of that. Yeah. Uh, hey, you know what I'm doing tomorrow? Uh, of course you don't. <laughs> oh, oh, good. I thought that was the trivia question, the always well-received and popular trivia question. I am going to see the very popular and always well-received Marky Ramone. Oh, the last in line, right? I think there might be one other drummer, like Richie Ramone. I think he was around for like one album. Oh, okay. So almost the last in line. Yes. Yeah. All of the original Ramones are dead. Marky came on board in like 79 for the end of the century album, which is my springboard into the Ramones. It's uh, the first Ramones song I ever heard was rock and roll radio. And that's, that's the one with Marky Ramone. Yeah. Same. And uh, we probably both heard it on the same record, Bill. Yep, on Rock 80. Now, funny story. Uh, So I'm going to see Marky Ramone. He's he's doing a lecture about being in the Ramones. Then they're going to do a screening of Rock and Roll High School. Nice. Yep. And then we have tickets for like a meet and greet as well. And uh, the girl that picked up the tickets, I was like, I... I don't. You didn't have to spend the money on the meet and greet because I've met Marky Ramone before. Have you hmm. ever met Marky Ramone? No, I've never met Marky Ramone. He's an odd dude. He was in the parking lot. I had gone to see Misfits. This is when he was in the Misfits for you know a couple of years, mm-hmm. and I spotted him like sitting in the truck in the parking lot, like smoking a cigarette or whatever. And you know it's Marky Ramone, man. He's a legend, so I want to at least go say hi and and thank you and all right. that. And I told him that I you know. Of course, growing up in the 70s, Kiss was my first, you know, favorite band. But the Ramones were my first not-Kiss band that I really enjoyed and got into. Right. And I said, you guys were on this album called Rock 80, put out by K-Tel. And then he just took over the conversation. He's like, <laughs> oh, I had that album. I, uh, it was in a crate in my cellar, and I had sold my house. And I didn't get all of my stuff out. And then the people that I sold the house to, 
they had like a flood and all of my stuff that was in the cellar got destroyed. So that album, another album by Nick Cave, and, and he kept on talking and talking. I was like, dude, I just wanted to say, you know, thank you and and, and, and all that. And I'm, I, I almost like want to like buy your record collection off of you just so you can have some money or something. Oh, that's so funny. Thank you for yeah. diminishing my joy at meeting you. Yeah. <laughs> considerably <laughs> oh well yeah I'm I, mean, gonna, I, I just can't wait like tomorrow is gonna be like and then I had this other album by Elvis Costello and then <laughs> that's where oh you know that's where my blue pair of Converse All-Stars was I bet those are ruined too <laughs> alright well, bye I, bye mean, Marky. <laughs> I mean like are the meet and greets like what is that even like I've never been to one so I, the only time I've ever done a meet and greet was uh, Fish from Marillion was playing, and they did a meet and greet at the bar down the street, and I got there too late. I walked in, I shook his hand, ran to the bathroom, and when I came out, he was gone. Oh, so <laughs> it was like meet and greet, and that's all you get. I was like, hi, right. bye. <laughs> I'll be right back. Uh, sure yeah. you will. And then gone. And then he said, because you can't understand anything, but he says, unbelievably scottish yeah all right uh before we get the show proper started i it is now time it's officially time for our very popular and always well received trivia i question. would like to answer marky ramon uh you're probably way off <laughs> uh, oh wait did i uh, did i overshoot <laughs> yeah you really overshot that one all right uh so today's trivia question is a fairly straightforward and simple question who has had the most consecutive number one hits. So this person had a number one hit, then they got another number one hit, and then they got another one number one hit, and they didn't get anything less than a number one hit for X amount of times in a row. So who's the perpetrator of this foul? And uh, and how many songs were there? Oh, Jesus! So it's two part question. So let me sure. just clarify: they didn't have any songs that didn't hit number one between each number one hit. And right. it wasn't like it was number one, and then their next song knocked the first song out of number one, and then their next song knocked the second one out of number one. No, but There's every single between. that they had went to number one this many times in a row. Yes. Okay. All right. End of the show. All right. Uh, so this is going to be the week beginning June the 27th, and my extensive and always very accurate uh, <laughs> record-keeping tells me that it must be your turn to start. Well, it's a good thing that we do the trivia question at the end because I'm writing all my answers down right now, courtesy of a 1978 vintage Eraser-Mate pen. A what? Do you remember the Eraser-Mate pen, Bill? All right, so this is this is the topic for today. Well, June 27th, 1978 is the first day that the Eraser-Mate pen is made available to people. Oh, yeah, I do remember the Eraser-Mate. I remember that being like the Holy Grail. That was like a most coveted item in school. I remember kids wanted them because you could erase test answers. Yes. <laughs> and then write different answers. And you got all kinds of grief if you tried to use them in math class. Right. Yeah. The the eraser mate was the first like erasable pen. And then what what year did you say it was? Seventy eight? nineteen seventy eight, yeah. Yeah, so like here we go. You know, only nine years after we landed a man on the moon, somebody finally invents a pen that can get erased. Yeah. I'm I'm pretty sure NASA was involved in this too. And they're like, Neil Armstrong needs a way to write swear words on the inside of the capsule. And then erase them before Buzz gets a hold of him and beats his ass, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, at, at any rate, 
I don't know if you remember, like, there were two types of pen people when we were kids. There's big pens people, yep. the ones that make, like, that crackly plastic noise when you write with them. Yep. And have the pointy-tipped cap that teachers always told you, don't put that in your mouth. I know a kid who was in a class that my cousin's best friend used to teach, and he swallowed it, and he died in front of everybody in class. That's those things were delicious. I don't know what she was talking about. Right? And I, I again, I chewed those things like mad as well. And then there were the papermate pen people who had fancier handwriting because papermate pens wrote more smoothly, except they left ink all over your friggin' hands all the time. Yeah. Those Inevitably, things exploded in your pocket. They exploded yes. like crazy, yeah. And the eraser mate was a big step up in that not only did it explode like its predecessor, but you could erase the whatever it was that you wrote. So using them in school meant that you couldn't do that. You only had one shot to do like spelling tests yep. or one shot to answer history tests where you had to fill in the blanks and then everybody would correct the answers in class. Yep. <laughs> so you could be like, oh yeah, scratch, 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 scratch. That's how you spell chord, C-H-O-R-D. And like they don't make erasable pens anymore. Yeah, I know. That's, I mean, you would think. I, that's I, probably because we don't go to the moon anymore. <laughs> I think part of the problem was the Eraser-Mate pens were novel, but they weren't very good. So the ink was always slimy and got all over your hands anyway from the paper, and it smudged like mad. And there was always the concern that you were putting down something in ink that ultimately wasn't going to be permanent. Right. So, You're not going to be like signing contracts with it, right? Right. They lasted a while. I don't think anybody makes them anymore. I don't know. I mean, then again, think about it. It's 2022, outside of signing documents, pens aren't really used much anymore. It's all digital now. Oh, you know, I say this and then I, I commence to put some nice ketchup and probably some tartar sauce all over my words and eat them. You can buy Eraser-Mate pens at really? Amazon. Oh. Yeah. Are they, like, wicked expensive like they were back in 1978? I remember them. It's, uh, they are, yeah, it's seven bucks for a box of 12. That's kind of steep for yeah. crappy ballpoint pens. Yep. All right. Uh, moving on to the 28th. This seems like it was just yesterday, really, but it was all, it was five years ago now. Right. The first in the MCU Spider-Man movies, Homecoming, uh, starring Tom Holland, comes out uh, June 28th. 2017. Building on the success of the Captain America Civil War, where Tom Holland as Spider-Man appeared in the big airport fight scene. Yes. And if you ask me, stole the show. <laughs> I, I really like whenever he was fighting Bucky and Black Panther. <laughs> and Bucky says to him, he goes, do you ever stop talking? <laughs> it was funny. He was, he was really good in that. And he was really good in the first of the... I haven't seen the other two, but I've seen the first of this one. Yeah. The Homecoming episode, yep. which which had some ties back to Ferris Bueller's Day Off and 80s-style cinema yep. and was a really nice sort of homage to stuff and bringing it into the modern era of, like, super modern special effects and, and Marvel-style storytelling. It's a good flick. Yeah. As a spider nerd, you know, Spider-Man being my favorite superhero and the one that I have the most comic books and the one I spend the most time reading, I never feel like they quite capture the... Spider-Man character correctly. Right. I think the closest they came was Andrew Garfield. I think Andrew Garfield was the best Spider-Man. You follow me? Like, not uh, not Peter Parker, Spider-Man. I thought he was, the way he would crack jokes while he was fighting people, which is essential to the character. Yeah, I, I saw the first one or first two of the Andrew Garfield ones. Yep, there's only two. So oh, so I off. saw both of the Andrew, both all two of the Andrew Garfield ones, yep. and they were plenty entertaining. 
Yeah. And I have a, you know, long love of the of by virtue of how good he was as Peter Parker, the Sam Raimi uh Spider-Man with um Toby Maguire. Right. Came back he and Andrew Garfield are in the most recent Spider-Man. Yes. Yeah, as a part of the multiverse. I think if you were to take all three of them and smash it together in a particle collider, you'd probably end up with a perfectly fine Spider-Man somewhere, somewhere in there. But uh, to me, in the Spider-Man movies, they've never, they haven't quite nailed it, not yet. Throw in the the Ralph Bakshi cartoon and a sprinkle in of the Electric Company Spider-Man, and we, and I'm all there. Yeah, and Ted, and Ted Schwartz, whatever one he was in. Just keep throwing him into the particle accelerator until you get the right mix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Moving on to the 29th. June 29th, 1979. A film nowhere near as good as any of the Spider-Man films that we just talked about. The 100th, maybe, of the James Bond franchise, where Roger Moore was just starting to get too tired and too old to play the character. Moonraker is released. Oh, my God. (laughs) Moonraker. Not to be confused with a good movie. Capitalizing on the special effects extravaganza of Star Wars, we end up. Oh, with- all right. Now that yeah, you know what that makes sense. Now I was, I was always confused by Moonraker. It's like, why are you going into space, and why do you have enemies up there all of a sudden? Yeah, that's the one where Drax is trying to build the race of like super Aryan people to send back to repopulate the Earth after killing everyone, and James Bond is the only one who can stop him. Uh, is that what it's about? It's- I've never yeah. seen it. I've never oh, seen it's, it. It's, it's based on a pretty, like, wackadoo but fun book by Ian Fleming, the guy who created James Bond. Yeah. But the film doesn't do the book justice. The film is plenty interesting. It's the second time we get to see Richard Keel as Jaws. Yeah, I was and, about to say, it was in Jaws in that one, yeah. Yeah, he finds love in that one on the space station that the end of the film takes place on. It was parodied really well in the first Austin Powers movie. So. <laughs> usually, usually... Whenever a franchise goes to space, that is like the death rattle, you know? (laughs) Hellraiser, I think part four was in space. And then all the subsequent Hellraiser movies were just like, you know, straight to video and stuff like that. Right. Jason X was in space, and we all said the same thing. It's in space, franchise over. Pretty much it was. That was pretty much the last of them. Moonraker was not the, it turned out not to be the last in the franchise because the film that came after it, Octopussy, was way better than Moonraker. I think they put more money into Octopussy and had way fewer special effects so they could afford to have better villains like Louis Jordan and uh, Maude Adams. It was grounded. It was about a trigger for a nuclear weapon and it was way more interesting. And, and let's not overlook the fact that they had a very misleading title. <laughs> yes. And then it then it went back to Crap Town, and they made A View to a Kill with the oldest James Bond in the universe. Uh, <laughs> I know. That got Roger Moore aged like a precedent somehow. His yeah. first time as James Bond was only 73, and his last yeah. time was 84. It's only 11 years, and he went from... And Live and Let Die is, in a, is a great James Bond movie. Right. I don't know, maybe he went through a particle accelerator, and that's what happened. It just, it just <laughs> jumped him ahead by 25 years. But yeah, he came out, and uh, it, was, it was rough. It was a rough one. All right, moving on to June the 30th, 1977, the rock group... KISS releases its comic book put out by Marvel. The big selling point on this one is the boys in the band went to the Marvel printing press and they donated a vial of blood each and they added it to the red ink 
So if you got the Kiss comic book, whatever ink was on the page that was in red, contained a little bit of Kiss's blood. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Which is gross in 2022. Yes, I am you know? pretty sure that I'm going to say this. shes I don't know if she's a fan of the show, but I'm still friends with her. My babysitter. Her brother was a ginormous Kiss fan, and I'm pretty sure he had that comic. Oh, I know. I picked it up and looked at it in the store. I have this memory, this vague memory of my mother saying, like, don't touch that book with your hands. Ah! Yeah, it came out in 1977. It was $1.50, which is pretty pricey for comic books in 1977. Right. I think they were still about, like, 35 cents normally at that time. Yeah, if even that, right. That's a lot of jingle to be parting with. As big of a Kiss fan as I am and have been, I don't think I've ever read any of their comic books. And they've had a number of them. They're like, we were talking last week about Hello Kitty. They're like the Hello Kitty of rock bands. So yeah, uh, they've had comic books for a long time, among other products and services. I don't think I'm missing out. <laughs> no. Uh, they put out other comic books. Whenever they did the reunion, they put out comic books around the Psycho Circus. And I remember my friend Dale had the comics. And I remember flipping through it and trying to... Trying to read it and saying nothing about, as much as I like Kiss, nothing about this is interesting to me at all. You know, they're, they're characters, but they're super duper thinly built. Because they're not yeah. characters. They're just meant to be visual imagery with a tiny, goofy backstory each. It's not like there's a depth of material to build on, you know? Right. I think after you've seen Kiss meets the Phantom in the Park, every story that you could possibly tell has been told. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yes. All right, moving on to the first. July 1st, 1979. Sony introduces the very first Walkman, a portable cassette player powered by three soon-to-die batteries, <laughs> a AA, if I remember correctly, with a set of surprisingly good headphones that were very small and light, allowing you to walk around and listen to cassettes wherever you wanted. The very first way you could sort of personalize your music listening experience and be mobile at the same time. And that made being a paper boy way more bearable. Also accused of melting the brains of those who use them? No, my brain uh, is seemingly fine. Were you ever a paper boy? I definitely was a paper boy. I can tell you stories, my friend. You know, sometimes you're a paper boy and you're, you know, you're you get distracted every once in a while. You just like forget a house, or yes, yep. maybe you you know go to the wrong door or whatever. Mm -hmm. And every single time that happened, my mother blamed it on me listening to my walk. <laughs> the time I only had the FM radio version of the Walkman when I was a paperboy, because that's all I could afford with my meager paperboy earnings. Later in life, I had uh, a couple of different brands. Walkman became synonymous with any kind of portable tape player, so everything was called yes. a Walkman. It was like Kleenex or, you know, pick some other thing that the brand name becomes the name for the whole thing. Ultimately, the, the one that I had that was the best one, I traded for a car. I traded a car to get. When I went to England, I traded what? my Nissan Sentra, which I was convinced I was never coming back to the U.S. I traded it to my friend Jim for an Iowa yep. branded Walkman, which I used relentlessly in England until it finally gave up the ghost. <laughs> did it last longer than the car? It did. Admittedly, my Nissan had like <laughs> 5 million miles on it, so. Uh, and Sony Walkman, that's like one of those success stories, too. Because, I mean, one, it, it, whenever it came out, they sold a bazillion units. I don't know if there was like a weird copyright thing, but there was like a bazillion knockoffs, that, like you just yep. mentioned. And I think it was like one of those things, like, you know, Sony put it out and they were like, well, we'll just take the speakers off and put a headphone jack on it. 
and we'll just save money by because we don't have to have speakers. It needs less power because it doesn't have to power the speakers. Right. And then everybody else is like, well, Jesus, why did we think of that? I, I, and, and the- <laughs> I think part of the success, too, is that I think there was only one or two different kinds of cassette playing mechanisms that all of the manufacturers used, irrespective of company. So they were kind of building them off the shelf, and it was more like the form factor was the thing that was really interesting. So Sanya was like, oh, I can make one of those. And I was like, yeah, I can make one of those too. And even Sears was like, oh, you know what? Can you guys make one of those for me? And I'll put, I'll put my name on it, and we'll pay you. And that's kind of what happened. Yeah, and then Radio Shack comes oh, running yeah. up behind. Yeah. All right. Moving on to July the 2nd of 1980, arguably the funniest movie ever made. <laughs> Fight me. Airplane with a exclamation point at the end. Put out by the Zucker Brothers. I I'm, are you a fan? I am I a fan? Yes. I'm, of Airplane? Yes. I am a fan. Yes. I okay. love Airplane. Because I was about airplane. to drive up to New Hampshire and oh. choke you with your own telephone cord if you said no. Man, I've got um, I've got favorite quotes amongst all the quotes of Airplane. <laughs> no, that's off by a fan. Jeez. Yeah, so Airplane was a parody of like almost a shot-by-shot, frame-by-frame parody of this Canadian disaster movie called Zero Hour. Yeah, from the 1950s. Yeah. If you watch Airplane and then you go back and watch Zero Hour, Zero Hour might be the funnier of the two movies. There's a great YouTube video that does a comparison of scenes. Whole scenes of dialogue are just dialogue from Zero Hour because the the Abrams... Yeah. Yeah. So Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker had to, to be on the safe side even though the lawyers, I guess, told them that they were doing intentional parody so that it was protected for fair use, is they bought the rights to Zero Hour so that they would never get sued. When we made airplane. Oh. So they just incorporated Smart. like whole swaths of dialogue and scenes and stuff into the film. And it's wicked funny if you can find it. What really makes Airplane so funny, to me anyway, is that they had so many dramatic actors in it. Like, everybody knows Leslie Nielsen as a comedic actor, but prior to Airplane, he wasn't. Right. He had always done drama and, and uh, like, romantic stuff. But Leslie Nielsen, Robert Stack, Lloyd Bridges, Peter Graves, these were all dramatic actors, like, straight dramatic actors doing unbelievably funny lines, deadpan, which made the lines even funnier. And, yeah. and so, okay, so this obviously is going to prompt the question, like, do you have a favorite quote, and if so, or favorite scene, or if so, what is it? Okay. So Leslie Nielsen says to uh, Str- uh, Ted Stryker, how soon can you land this airplane? Stryker says, I can't tell you. He says, you can tell me. I'm a doctor. No, I mean, I don't have uh, any idea. Well, can't you take a guess? Well, not for another two hours. You can't take a guess for another two hours? No, I mean, we can't leave the play for another two hours. But the, the di- dialogue is so straight and so deadpan. It's, it's beautiful. So for me, it's when it's when um, Robert Hayes is sitting next to the old lady and he's trying to drink and his hands are shaking. And she says, nervous? And he says, yeah, I'm a little nervous. He says, first time? And he goes, no, I've been nervous lots of times. <laughs> that line always makes me cackle. Uh, speaking of Robert Hayes, Robert Hayes, the actor that played Ted Stryker in Airplane, actually follows Twibley on Instagram. Get out of town. He's liked our posts a couple of times, too. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. Hopefully he listens to the show. Mr. Hayes, if you're listening, please message us. I'd like to, I'd love to hear that you're listening to the show. Yeah, That'd be fantastic. We'll, we'll bring you on as a special guest or something. 
You can you yeah. can do a celebrity uh, birthday. I met him at one of the cons that I go to, and I thanked him. I was like, thank you for making one of the funniest movies of all time. He is as funny in person as he is as a comedic actor. Yeah, I said, thank you know, thanks for making the movie. He goes, yep, did it all by myself. <laughs> Had no help whatsoever. <laughs> at least he didn't go tell that to George Zip. <laughs> over Macho Grande? Macho Grande? No, I don't think I'll ever get over <laughs> Macho Grande. <laughs> All right, and let's wrap up the week. July 3rd, uh, one of our favorite silly holidays is Eat Beans Day. All right, here's the challenge. Okay, challenge accepted. We're going to do this entire segment for June the 3rd. Eat Beans Day, there will be not one, not a single fart joke. Oh, this will be a gas. Go. Did I already lose? There will not be any further (laughs) fart jokes. I tend to... uh, to describe myself at any given time as 55% beans, being a vegetarian. So mm-hmm. um, eat beans. Sure. I literally eat beans just about every day. I'm on a bean kick myself. I make a large vat of beans, probably about two Oof, cups worth. That's, that's a lot. In my pressure cooker. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's my yeah. lunch for the week. You know, I, I, I scoop out a bunch and I mix it up with, you know, it's several several beans. Do you have a favorite bean? I usually go with I black and red. I do. So, well, to finish the rest of your recipe, and I'll tell you the beans I that I like. All right, so I usually mix up black and red beans. I have a pressure cooker, and pressure cookers are like a magic trick if you like beans because normally when you cook beans, you like boil, you know, put them on the, on the stovetop, boil them for like 20 minutes to a half an hour, and then let them sit for 24 hours and, and you know, soaking up the water and all that. With a pressure cooker, you boil them, for six minutes and then let them sit in the pressure cooker on the leave on mode for like an hour and a half. Boom. Wow. Done. 24 hours worth of cooking in an hour and a half. It's like nice. a magic trick. I have a favorite. My right now current favorite because we're coming into summertime is uh, garbanzo beans or chickpeas. I make chickpea salad. I make okay. chickpea curry. I do that throughout the rest of the year. I eat a combination of black beans and red beans and I eat a lot of of lentils that are turned into things like fake meatballs or fake hamburger patties. Super good. So what I do is I take these, uh, once I get my beans all cooked and all that, I put them in my Ninja food processor and I add ketchup, mustard, steak sauce, and Thousand Island dressing and I make this mush that comes out tasting tremendously like a Big Mac. Yeah, oh, I put some onion powder in there too, yeah. But I just have this like mush. Yeah, I put it in the Tupperware and, you know, I eat it with some uh, either like some small breads or sometimes celery or whatever. But yeah, that's my lunch. Big Mac mush. (laughs) (laughs) Big Mac smoothie. Vegan style. (laughs) All right. uh, Moving on to the celebrity birthdays. June the 27th, 1927. My favorite kids show host when I was a kid. Bob Keeshan, better known to the world as Captain Kangaroo. Ah, staple from my Monday through Friday mornings before elementary school. Yeah. I was watching Captain Kangaroo. And what's pretty like odd is out of all the you know, like children's television shows, he's probably the first one to get forgotten. Mm-hmm. You know, like everybody knows who Mr. Rogers is. Everybody knows what Sesame Street is. People might need some reminding, but... I think Romper Room and Bozo also kind of live in the zeitgeist a little longer. Captain Kangaroo, I don't know. I think I feel like people need more reminding. And it's yeah. not like he wasn't popular. He was very popular. 
Yeah, he was. He was on, I think he was on CBS and syndicated throughout the whole country. Mm -hmm. I, if you put, you know, electrodes on me and and told me you were going to give me a million volts, uh, if I couldn't tell you the plot of an episode of a Captain Kangaroo show, I would be electrocuted because I I can remember that he had a show. It had a moose on it named Mr. Moose and a bunny rabbit named Mr. Bunny Rabbit. And that's all I can remember. And there was Mr. Green Jeans Mm -hmm. who looked tremendously like Ted Nugent, like enough to be his father. Right, uh, Ted Nugent actually, now or Ted Nugent in the seventies? He, he looked like he could be Ted Nugent's father. Oh, okay. So, so Ted Nugent now. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Modern Ted Nugent, postmodern Ted Nugent. I don't really remember there being a lot. I don't remember learning a lot. I remember being enter- I remember being a little kid and being entertained by it. And I remember. Yeah, exactly. The moose would drop like a. A hundred ping pong balls on people's heads, and that's kind of funny. More than anything, what I really remember, he was on forever. He was on from the 50s into the 70s. Right. But every episode, whatever I was watching, always started out with about four to five celebrities saying, good morning, Captain. And then Captain Kangaroo would say, good morning, and the show would start. Uh So, yeah, he he was very well loved and sadly not very well remembered. Hmm. Next up. June 28th, 1948, American actress Kathy Bates. I don't remember her either. No. <laughs> <laughs> she's born in Memphis, Tennessee, and she's she hit being super-duper well-known playing Annie in, not Annie, but in Misery. Especially Heavens when to she, Betsy! And she's definitely a Liberty gibbet as she, like, sledgehammered James Conn's ankles. Yeah. I still have nightmares where that happens to me. And she parlayed that role as Annie... God, what was her? I had her last name in Annie something crazy. As Annie something crazy into a long career as a really well-respected character actress who did drama, comedy, has now done television on the American Horror Story series. Yes, and is still going strong. I remember her being really good in. This is going to sound odd coming from me in the type of movies that I generally like, but she was really good in Fried Green Tomatoes. Did you ever see that movie? This movie was great. I have not. Based on a novel by Fanny Flagg. It's a fun watch. Yeah. American Horror Story, I have a love-hate relationship with it. Mostly hate. But one of my favorite seasons is generally looked at as one of the worst seasons. But I really liked it because I like unusual um, storytelling framings. And Roanoke. Kathy Bates was like kind of like the central focal villain in Roanoke. She was a main character in Hotel. That was the one that I really enjoyed. Her scenes and the scenes that she had with the guy who ran the front desk, who ultimately was the focal point of the whole show, yeah. was were great. She was fantastic in that. All right. Uh, moving on to June the 29th. This man's name has got so many accents and umlauts. I'm just going to say the Americanized version of his name. All right. Edward Benedictus, a name you may not recognize. And I don't. (laughs) But our good friend over here, uh, Edward Benedictus, born in 1878, he was the inventor of safety glass. Oh. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I think what happened is he had like a glass, like a wine glass, and he dropped it on the ground and pieces went everywhere. And he said, you know, that sucks. A lot. <laughs> That's an you know, enormous mess. You know what would be better than this? Plastic. Putting yeah. plastic in between the panes. No one would be better than this just about anything. I mean, 
safety glass, you know, exactly. It is what it is. I mean, most most windows have a safety glass, and the same thing with, uh, you know, obviously windshields and car windows and, and whatnot. If there's glass to be had and there's humans going to be around it, generally speaking, there's going to be, it's going to be safety glass, yeah. Jeez, and, you know, to think uh, it took into the, the late 1940s, early 1950s before auto manufacturers were even putting this stuff in cars. And he invented it in, like, what, 1910 or 1905? Something uh, crazy like uh, that? Yeah, I think it was even earlier. It was 1903, according to my... 19, 1903. Yeah. It took, fifth, like, imagine 50 years of safety glass right. before auto manufacturers like, mm, safety glass, you say? That sounds expensive. <laughs> 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 All right, moving on to the 30th. June 30th, 1959, American actor Vincent D'Onofrio... Probably best known as playing Private Pile in Full Metal Jacket. That is definitely the role that brought him to prominence. But he's also the kingpin, the greatest of all kingpins on the Daredevil uh, Marvel TV universe, whatever it's called. Daredevil and and Punisher series. And as I understand it, he may be reprising the role in the cinematic versions of whatever Spider-Man film, I think, comes y- next. Yeah, I heard that rumor too. Kingpin is probably... This is a statement to be made. Ready? Kingpin is probably the best part about the Daredevil Netflix series, and there was a lot to like about it. Yes, I you agree. Know? He was he, that uh, he was just fantastic as Kingpin. They really put time into writing his arc and yes. making it good. I really, you know, being a, a Marvel comic books fan, I think I had the whole run of the 1990s, of, you know, Spider-Man and whatnot. I really, really like that they included in his character in the Daredevil series. His, you know, he's such a ruthless, you know, mobster, mm-hmm. but he absolutely will do anything for his wife Vanessa. That's right. his number one priority. Depending on who was writing the comics that that Kingpin yeah. was in, it certainly determined the, the scope of a lot of that sort of super weird second tier of heroes. I don't want to get off the subject of Vincent D'Onofrio. He's doesn't just Ooh. play villains in movies or, or big goobers either, but he played. Uh, he's in the biopic of Robert Howard, a film called The Whole Wide World, which is great. Robert Howard's the guy that wrote Conan the Barbarian. Oh, yeah. He was also, I, I know people laugh when I say this, but of all of the Saturday Night Live movies, there are a couple of real standout ones, and one of the ones that I always think of as a standout is Stuart Saves His Family, and he plays Stuart Smalley's alcoholic younger brother. In that movie, oh, and he's fantastic in it. All right, moving on to July the 1st. July the 1st, 1939, the voluptuous <laughs> Karen Black, who you may remember from such films as Trilogy of Terror. That's exactly the only thing that I remember Karen Black from. Karen Black, actually, she was in Easy Rider, and she is credited as acid-tripping whore. Which is, which is something. Yeah. Uh, she was in a few movies here and there. Uh, you know, mostly kind of like B, mostly like B films and stuff. Uh, she was in the airport 1975. Uh-huh. And I guess our good friend Rob Zombie was a big fan of her work from like Trilogy of Terror because he gave her, uh, he gave her a role in his House of a Thousand Corpses film. She was in some like lower budget stuff. And a, a ton of TV. Right. Things that I didn't realize that she was in. She was in um, It's Alive 3. Do you remember the It's Alive movies? Yes. The Monster Babies. like, And they yep. got cheaper and te- more terrible as they went along. And right. I think she and Michael Moriarty were the third one. 
Uh, she was also in Children of the Corn 4, which the same can be said about that series as well. Yeah, she was in the remake of Invaders from Mars, which was which was okay. It was almost direct to HBO, I think, at the time, but it made a short run through the cinemas. It wasn't terrible. It just wasn't great. And uh, Oh, and she was in another movie. I know nothing about it, but I want to watch it just because of the name of it. It's called Ooga Booga. <laughs> All right, next up. July 2nd, 1937. Uh, ultimately, a character actress named Polly Holiday, who... who? He, exactly. Who Bill and I remember as Flo on the show Alice, based on the film oh. Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Yeah, Kiss My Grits. Yes. I didn't realize that she was in anything else. Neither what? Well, there was a spinoff co- show called Flo. Huh? Was it really? Yeah. I don't remember that at all. What was? The, what the hell was the plot of that show? And uh, how many days no, did it last? One? That, well, put it this way. Our, our worst song ever segment... Probably has a good uh, <laughs> competition with it. But anyway, uh, what, what else was she in? She was in uh, the Parent Trap remake with Lindsay Lohan. She played Zach Galligan's teacher in Gremlins. I don't know how well you remember Gremlins. I remember that very well. That was her? Yep. You know, she always wore that big-ass red wig mm-hmm. as Flo. That was kind of like her calling card, so I don't think I would even recognize her without the wig. Yeah, she did a bunch of TV and stuff too. Uh, you know, after uh, after Flow went off the air, yep, the show that I don't remember at all. But she was in a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so sort of did that like 1970s, sometimes in movies and sometimes on TV. You know, I'm sure she did a couple of episodes of like The Love Boat and <laughs> Fantasy Island and right, yeah. You know, God knows what else. And wrapping up the birthdays, July the third, 1964. An actress who you may not recognize, but you definitely recognize her voice. Her name is Yeardley Smith. She is the voice of Lisa Simpson. Very distinctive voice. Yes. I remember seeing her, seeing her for the first time in a movie with Christian Slater called The Legend of Billie Jean. Yes. Which played the little sister. Yeah, with Helen Slater, right? She was. Uh, yes. She went on to be Supergirl. Or yes. was that after Supergirl? I think it was before Supergirl. Uh, yeah, either or, but yes, that that's the right movie. And uh, and she was also the psycho bridezilla in the movie Maximum Overdrive. My favorite quotes, I, I wish I could find the actual quotes, is her. She goes on a screaming, swearing tirade in uh, Maximum Overdrive, which is really funny because you can never unhear it. So right. every time I hear Lisa Simpson talk, I can remember that, that she was like screaming, swears like mad in the backseat of a car in Maximum Overdrive. I have an audio book of Stephen King's uh, collection of short stories, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, and Yeardley Smith actually narrates one of the stories, and it's really bizarre to hear Lisa Simpson telling you a horror story. Yeah, that's definitely something else. Almost as bizarre as... The Worst Song Ever. Uh, Jeff, I, I picked out this week's worst song ever. Like, I have very, very little memory of this song. And all I remember is that I was bombarded by it at work. So the name of the song is How Do You Talk to an Angel? Which I have some theories. <laughs> <laughs> you say you have a limited memory of this song? I have never heard this song in my life that I can remember at all. Now, I'm sure that I bumped into it on the radio if I was in a store or something here and there. Mm-hmm. But I went back and listened to it a couple of times and 
There is nothing in the memory banks. I should be so lucky. So as I understand it, talking about it with you, yep. this was tied to a TV show that ran on Fox from like August to November of 1992. All right, before we get into talking about the show, let's just play the clip because there's something I do want to point out about the song itself. I don't know where to start. Tell me, tell me the words to define the way I feel about someone so This was a thing that lasted a couple of years in the 90s that is like one of my least favorite vocal styles, what I call the loud whisper. Yes. The guy from the Happy Mondays sang like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, The guy from the Beloved sang like this. Jesus Jones. It's like this. (laughs) Right. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Knock it off. It fits in well with the terrible tenor sax hour that takes place like in the middle third of the song. Right. So this song, How Do You Talk to an Angel, was the theme song to a television show called The Heights, which aired on Fox. Ah, and in my extensive research of the two paragraphs about this show I could find, it aired from August to November of 1992, where I was in another country. Yeah, I should be so lucky, yeah. I had no idea what you described to me. I'm like, I, Bill, I have no idea. Are you sure this was on when I was alive? Yeah. And it was, uh, I happened to be in a place where that those type of Fox shows weren't being ported over to. Uh... So I, the idea of the Heights was there was going to be a fictional band. It was going to be like the monkeys, so to speak, you know, except for it is set in a, you know, a fictional town called the Heights. And that was also the name of the band. You remember a movie came out around the same time, um, so maybe it showed over in England, called uh, Singles? Yes, I remember Singles. Right? And I remember my friends like, yeah, I want to see that. So it's kind of about the Seattle music scene. It's like, no, it is not. It is a romantic comedy. Yeah. Seattle music scene is a backdrop. It's super light on the comedy, too. They probably had the script for years and then just sewed it into something. Kind of like Gleaming the Cube. It's like, right. we, we need a skateboard movie. Uh, well, yes. we have this one about the Vietnam crime syndicate. Make the kid ride a skateboard. It'll be great. <laughs> get a get a wig on that Tony Hawk kid. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have a wig. Make one. Go so, buy one at the Halloween store. Yeah. So the, the Heights is like the monkeys with all the fun and energy just zapped completely out of it. Just picture uh-huh. like 1992 morose America just... <sighs> Or just a picture of the new monkeys, right? That was only a couple (laughs) years ahead of time. No, but at least they were trying to be funny. The Heights was was more like a drama. It was an ensemble cast. I think there was like eight kids in this band, right? Those bands are always super successful, as we know from past history. Yeah, trust me. I've been in a couple of bands. Four is the limit. Never. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Any any more than that, you're asking for trouble. And even then, you're pushing things. Yeah. And it's like the Burger King Kids Club. Anytime there's like a weird ensemble cast like this, it's always a bunch of people from all these different social economic backgrounds with nothing in common, and yet they're all best friends. I don't know how this happened. I've never seen that happen in real life. Never once. Yeah, I've never seen that happen either. We just, uh, we aren't wired to do that as a species, I think. No. 
It had 13 episodes. Fox canceled it before the last episode aired, and nobody cared. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was probably just before my plane touched down as I returned home from overseas. This song, though, How Do You Talk to an Angel, went to number one. It was a number one hit. This is a really big hit. I remember them playing it on the local hit radio station, which, you know, back in 1992, there wasn't Spotify. There wasn't Bluetooth headphones. You either listened to the, the one radio station that comes in or you didn't listen to music. So this song would come on all the time. And I, and I, I God, I want to quit my job. I hated this song so much. <laughs> as soon as the song dropped out of the number one spot, Fox was like, and canceled the show. They Like I said, they still had one episode left to air. So there was 13 episodes total. 12 of them are available on YouTube, including the one that didn't air. Yeah, the only one that isn't available is the first episode, the pilot. I guess it's funny that the theme song went to number one, but then I, I thought like the theme song to Friends, that charted. They had to expand it to make it song length. Right. Remember the greatest American hero? That went to number two. Yep. Uh, Welcome back, Cotter. Right, the theme song to that one. Welcome back, Cotter by John Sebastian from The Love and Spoonful. That went to number one. Even um, so, even the theme not from super An- unknown to have it happen. Even the theme from Angie, which starred our good friend and current listener Robert Hayes. Yeah, even that uh, different worlds. Yeah, even that song went. Yep. You know, even that song charted yeah, anyway. Yeah, like weird stuff like the Hill Street Blues theme. Yeah, which was just like. Yeah, that one, number one. So I guess it's not that unusual. There was no follow up for that. No, no, it was a fictional band. It was like the it was actually the first fictional band to go number one since the Archies. Well, sugar, sugar. <laughs> Ain't that some sugar? Yeah. <laughs> so I attempted to watch an episode of The Heist just to get a feel for this. <laughs> yep. I am amazed it lasted 12 episodes. Very paper-thin kind of uh, characters. Like, seriously, in 2022, you could get an AI to write the script for this show. (laughs) Those weird years where Fox was trying to find its feet. Yep. Trying to figure out what it was going to be that wasn't just The Simpsons and Married with Children were funny years for TV. Yeah, like the the one story arc that I kind of remember, like I've already forgotten it, that's how, how the show was, was see if this surprises you at all. One of the guys in the band had a scholarship and his parents wanted him to be a classical musician, but he wanted to play rock and roll. And Let me guess. Keyboards. Uh, to be honest, I don't even remember what he played. It was seriously that forgettable. Ah. And that's just so weird that he says, no, I want to play rock and roll. It's like even in 92, they weren't calling it rock and roll anymore. What the hell? No. Well, maybe, maybe he watched uh, the only movie he was allowed to watch as a kid was Crossroads. Or maybe he watched Rock and Roll High School with Marky Ramon. (laughs) Or maybe he was listening to the person that had the most consecutive number one hits. Oh, you thought I forgot. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say that this is a guy from pre-MTV. I'm going to say that he has a face for radio, and that's why this is a fun trivia question. So... I am going to throw out the name Christopher Cross, and I'm going to say four. Okay. No and no. (laughs) Oh, well. It was worth a try. First of all, I don't think I could name four Christopher Cross songs. Two, 
Tied for second place are the Beatles and the Bee Gees, who both had six number one hit songs in a row. But they were beat out in 1985 through 1988 with your friend and mine, Whitney Houston. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. It's it's easy to forget how, how humongous she was right. for about 10 years. She was like the voice of adult contemporary pop music. So totally get that. Think about it. She actually released the national anthem as a single and people bought it. There was a story when I was, again, when I was overseas of someone who she played, uh, they had been playing in their apartment yep. just over and over again. I will always love you. And somebody broke in and smashed the stereo. And <laughs> I threw remember it out the hearing window. that story. <laughs> and I was there when um, that song got knocked out of the UK top 40s, number one spot by Faith No More's cover of Easy Like Sunday Morning. Beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. I sang thing along in the kitchen with, in a sink full of suds, cleaning the dishes. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to wrap up our show for this week. We'll see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibley or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends. Twibley is approved by Emperor Norton, protector of Mexico and friend to Canada.